0: Close to 30 years ago, Mary-Lou and I spent the summer in Calcutta, India. We were there as part of an overseas missions practicum sponsored by Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, where I was a student. We spent the summer working with Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity. I volunteered in a roadside health clinic and Mary-Lou taught English to the sisters. And we lived at the YWCA. Now, in those days, and maybe still today, the government of West Bengal ran the electric company. In uh, 1981, there were 9 million people in Calcutta, and 9 million people use a lot of electricity. And much of that electricity was channeled through bootleg arrangements with makeshift power lines straggling through the various poor neighborhoods of the city. Demand often exceeded supply those skeptical Indians insisted that there was plenty of electricity to go around and that the shortages were imaginary and politically motivated, whatever the reality, the electric company practiced what they called load shedding, which meant that every once in a while the power would be shut off to segments of the city for several hours at a time, and this could happen any time of day. Well, we ate our meals at the YWCA along with all the other guests. And while we were there, there were people from Nigeria, uh, Belgium, Germany, France, Bhutan, and um, various other parts of India. And we tended to gather on the veranda before the dining room opened, visiting with each other while we waited for the waiters to put the food on the tables, rice and dal and bread most of the time, although every once in a while a dish that vaguely resembled something Western. The meals were served family style. And that evening, as we watched, the waiters placed heaping bowls of rice on each table. And then the lights went out. I can't remember how long they were out. I'm sure it wasn't nearly as long as it seemed at the time. But I have a vivid recollection of what happened next. We stood there still chatting, by this time uh, well acquainted with the unreliable electricity. And to be honest, the quality of the food um, lent itself to a rather relaxed attitude about getting to the table The sun had gone down by now. The sky was dark, and we could hear the sound of bats beginning their eating. And then suddenly the lights came back on, and I happened to be facing the dining room and so have a most vivid and disturbing memory of what happened next, a picture that, even after all these years, still gives me the willies. The lights suddenly came on, and what seemed like every cockroach on the planet fled in terror from every bowl of rice, on every table, cockroaches ran away, fearful of the coming of the light, a light that disturbed them in their feasting, a light that they did not welcome, a light they feared. And once the flow ended, with the slowest and fattest cockroaches safely back in their dark hiding places, we went into dinner. <laughs> it was our turn to eat. Well, the very first thing that God did at least that we know about from the scripture, was to create light. Everything before that was dark, formless, chaotic, void, empty, not fit, as they say, for human habitation or any other habitation for that matter. And then God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. The first move God made in turning chaos into creation. And God has been associated with light ever since. Now, in biblical times, of course, there was no electricity to be abruptly shut off. No load shedding was needed. Light came with the sun. And when the sun went down, human beings relied on fires of various kinds to provide light against the darkness, torches and candles and campfires, stoves. People found safety in the light, safety, to, safety from the danger that lurked there, out there somewhere in the dark, waiting to pounce on someone wandering alone after nightfall because thieves came in the dark and robbers and thugs and a well-lit place kept them at bay or at least provided sufficient clarity of vision to see them coming and so get ready. Now, we don't feel the same way about the dark as did our ancient ancestors. We rarely experience it like they did. These days, we actually talk about something called light pollution, the constant glow from electric lighting that makes it difficult to see the stars or other cosmic events. Like everything else, we humans have managed to tame even the dark, we've domesticated it and inhabit it as easily as we do today, which makes it hard, I think, to understand why our ancient ancestors so readily associated the light with God. We wouldn't need any miraculous fire in the sky to light our way through the wilderness. We'd just turn the headlights on. In fact, we'd struggle to find wilderness at all. MapQuest and a GPS device have virtually made wilderness obsolete, at least for most of us. Getting lost is a thing of the past, at least for most of us, and the same is true of being afraid of the dark. Nowadays, that fear is considered to be childish and something that we are to outgrow. Even the coming of the light, described by John in his metaphor-mixing gospel prologue is old hat for us. The Christ came so long ago, and we've heard and rehearsed the story so many times that Mustering up some enthusiasm for the coming of the light becomes a daunting act of faith. It it is at once too big for us to describe and, and too familiar for us to make too much of a fuss about. What strikes me, though, about this text is that it does not assume anything of us human beings. The light does not come because the people understood themselves to be lost and wandering, though they were and are to this day. The light does not come because the people were clamoring for it. The light does not come expecting a royal welcome. The light does not come because we wanted it to. The light does come for our sake, but it comes even if we don't know that it's coming for our sake. Here comes the sun, whether we welcome it or not, ready or not. Here comes the sun. John intentionally echoes Genesis 1 in his first chapter. Here, too, God takes the measure of things and offers a healing word in response. And we can speculate about what God, what caused God to speak, what motivated God's entry into human history. But ultimately, we must admit that God's acts for God's own reasons. When the time came, God spoke a word and the light came into the darkness and it was good. But the world did not receive the light. I first read the Narnia books when I was in college. Over my four years there, I spent lots of evenings in the Villanova um, Library reading novels. Not assigned novels, you understand. Um, Anything to avoid studying. In the seventh book of the Narnia series, called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis imagines the end of the world. At the novel's end, the hero walks through the doorway of a stable. A stable, get it? He expects to find darkness there. But instead, on the other side of the door, there is a sunlit and limitless expanse. The world inside the stable, it seems, is so much bigger than the world outside the stable. And there he meets the heroes of the previous books in the series. And before too long, he meets Aslan the lion, the one true ruler over Narnia. And soon, following Aslan's instructions, the hero and his new friends begin moving further up and farther in, making their way toward the heavenly kingdom where they will rest and rejoice forever. Well, a group of dwarves also had also made their way through the stable door. Um, they'd gone through the door against their will. And they sat there just inside the door in a tight circle facing one another. They did not comprehend the light, the beauty, the expanse of grace all around them. In their minds and hearts, they were still sitting in a dark stable and no amount of coaxing or cajoling on the part of the others could convince them otherwise. And so there they remained in the light, but not able to receive the light, bound in a darkness of their own making, unwilling or unable or too afraid to open their eyes and see the light all around them. And so there they stayed and perhaps are still there to this day, eyes closed against the coming of the light thinking themselves to still be in darkness long after the coming of the sun. Well, God sent the light into the world and the world did not receive it, even though God sent someone named John to go around telling people that the light was coming. John was not the light. He was someone who told about the light. So if the light was the sun, John was the moon reflecting the light. And so testifying to its coming, the true light was on its way. But even though the light had been there at the very first dawn, and even though the whole world depended upon the light for its very existence, still the world did not know the light. The world belonged to the light, but the world acted as though it had never heard of or even seen the light. The world did not receive the light. It did not comprehend the light. It did not understand the light. How this can be, I think we can understand. Have you ever walked from a well-lighted space into a dark space? From the kitchen to the basement, maybe, or maybe out the front door and into the cold nighttime sky? At first, it's hard to see, right? Our eyes prefer lots of light, or at least adequate light to see. They grow accustomed to the light and come to depend upon it, which makes sense, right? I mean, that's how our eyes function. That's how they work best. And then the lights go off or there are no lights, or we enter a place of darkness, and our eyes don't seem to work all that well. We stumble around, or maybe we just stand still for a few moments and waiting for our eyes to adjust to the darkness, and they slowly do just that. Before too long, we can make our way around in the dark pretty well. Our eyes adjust to the dark. Perhaps they even grow to prefer the darkness. And perhaps our hearts follow suit. There's something comforting, right? Even romantic about a low-lit room. Blemishes that we can see so clearly in the bright light of day grow softer and even disappear in the darkness. Behaviors that we'd never do in broad daylight are now possible under the cover of the dark. Things that we'd prefer not to look at. Realities that we'd prefer not to see or think about. They vanish in the darkness. Out of sight, out of mind, we say. And we mean it. There's much to be said for a life in the darkness. And when the lights come on, we blink, we stagger, we squint against the coming of the sun. It's it's too much for us to take, too much to bear. It burns us, it exposes us. And so we scatter like roaches from a bowl of rice. We head for the hills and run for cover. We flee back to Egypt. We run back to the old dark places. We flee to the safety of the darkness. Or maybe we don't run away. Maybe we just close our eyes and pretend it's all an illusion the darkness is just fine with us don't go trying to trick us into believing something um, better is coming we've heard it all before we've been disappointed in fact too many times before so we close our eyes and stay sitting there miserable but content in our misery like like a baby who refuses to let her blanket be washed even when it smells like sour milk Because after a while, sour milk begins to smell pretty good. It begins to smell like home. But recall that according to John, God does not ask us whether or not we want the light to come. God does not consult us or take an opinion poll or do market research to determine an expected demand. The light shines in the darkness. The light is in the world. Here comes the sun. Believe it or not. Well, back in the day, as they say, I used to work at um, Philhaven Hospital. And my last job there was in what is called the Access Center. It's the place that you call for services. And our job was to listen long enough to determine what services were needed or appropriate and then assist the caller in making connection to those services. We were, I suppose, the hospital gatekeepers. We made it possible for folks to enter the system and receive whatever help they needed. And like gatekeepers should, we also were supposed to keep some folks from getting in at all. Part of our job was security. That meant we roamed around the place at night checking to make sure the doors were locked and making sure everybody was in who belonged in and making sure everybody who did not belong in stayed out. And we rotated across shifts, we access center folks, Days, evenings, and nights. And I dreaded my times on the night shift. It was dark. Go figure. It was quiet, but not in a contemplative way, more in a kind of loneliness-inducing, creepy way. Everyone else in the building was asleep or seemed that way. And um, you certainly wish to be, too, your own sleeping thrown hopelessly out of whack until you made it back onto the day shift. And the night seemed to last forever. Sometimes I'd wish for an emergency or to crop up, or a frantic phone call from someone needing help just to make time move more quickly. Selfish thinking, I realize. But that's what the night shift did to me. Eight hours on nights might as well have been eight thousand hours. Some nights I thought the sun would never come up. But then sometime around four or four thirty, I'd see the first hint of gray out the window. Under ordinary circumstances, the color of blandness, of fog and murk. But after a night plane security guard, it's the most beautiful color ever. Because once gray showed up, I knew the sun was coming. The light was on its way. Raining or snowing, in full sight or hidden behind some clouds, the sun was coming and with it a new day and an end to what seemed like a forever night. That little bit of first gray light. Was enough to make me burst into song. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun, I'll say. It's all right. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of human will, but of God. And so it is that some of the world did, in fact, receive. The light, the last best word of God, the one shining in the darkness and yet never overcome by it. Many did flee, and some did hunker down and pretend it had not come at all, but others welcomed that light as the beginning and ending that it was the ending of a long, cold, lonely winter, the ending of a wilderness wandering, lasting centuries, an ending to the stumbling, staggering walk of the unseeing, and a beginning. The beginning. The beginning of true hope. The beginning of God's final movement in bringing the whole world to redemption. The beginning of the fulfillment of every last promise ever uttered to our ancestors. Blessing. Restoration. Righteousness. Peace. Justice. All of them finding their beginning in the coming of the light, in the coming of the sun. And so some did hear the words of the lesser light, the words of John, standing by the river and daring everyone to open their eyes and see that the fire was coming, and to prepare for it by soaking themselves in water, cleansing and making themselves ready for yet another baptism, one all light and heat and power from above. And some who heard followed along after the light, and some told stories about what they'd seen in the light's presence, and some wrote those stories down, and Some set those stories against a backdrop as big as the universe. And those stories passed from generation to generation, providing that same light to those who came after. And while many still did not receive the light, others did. And so it went until this very day, when we've gathered to bear witness that we've not only seen the light, but have also welcomed its coming. Not that it comes naturally to us, even after all these years. Having long since tamed the darkness, we're much less likely to be surprised or thrilled by the coming of the light. Having heard the story over and over again, we're much less likely to be moved by its telling. And yet still we gather. We gather together and proclaim to one and all the coming of the light. We use our imaginations and so try to feel again the wonder of that first breaking of the dawn. We tell ourselves stories of the darkness and of the coming of the light and so catch a glimpse of the joyful breaking of the long silence the return of God's voice speaking light into the chaos of our darkness. And so we give thanks and we make our way along the path before us, following that light wherever it will take us. And we keep on speaking words of peace to those in headlong flight away from the light. We keep on speaking words of hope to those clenched tight against its warmth. Perhaps in their presence is where we best remember what our lives would be like, what they were like before the light's coming Our remembering does not lead us to judgment so much as to compassion. And so we keep on proclaiming the light's coming, waiting for the running to stop, for the eyes and hearts to finally open, and for the whole world to receive the light and so be saved. Sisters and brothers, it's already been a long, cold, lonely winter. Sisters and brothers, it feels like years since it's been here. But here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say it's all right. And so our hearts slowly catch the rhythm of that old familiar tune, the one that was first sung at the beginning, an angelic chorus to accompany God's command that the light come into being. A song sung again by John by the river, a song of joy and conviction, calling one and all to welcome the light by getting cleaned up for its arrival. A song still sung wherever Christians, wherever followers of the light still gather to proclaim the coming of the sun into the world. A a song still sung whenever we live like children of God, like people of the light, like those whose work and joy it is to call others, the ready and the not ready, the running and the hunkered down, the eager and the fearful to come and open themselves and so receive the coming of the sun, the breaking of the dawn and the ending of the long night of human sin. And so we sing in the rocks, the trees, every creature joins us in singing. Lions and stars and beetles, too. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say it's all right. Amen.